Morning. All right. Uh, we're in Philippians 3. Sorry, we're in Philippi. If you're new here uh, or visiting from out of town, we are preaching through the book of Philippians. We are in Philippians 3, verses 10 through 16, although we'll really just have time to cover the terrain of 10 through 14. So that's the text we'll really dive into this morning, uh, entitled Communion with Christ. The Apostle Paul writes, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Heavenly Father, I pray that our goal for each individual and family, Lord, our goal would be to know you, to know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to have fellowship with you, Lord, a sweet communion with you. Through Christ, Lord. God, I pray that what you would want our minds focused on and, and our hearts driving toward, Lord. God, that that would, it, it would be your will and not ours, Lord. That you would accomplish that, God. You would work in us for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's quite obvious Paul's goal is to know Christ. That's it. He wants to grow and remain in fellowship with Jesus. So much so, if you remembered, he just told us in the previous passage that he considers everything he had, everything he was before Christ is lost. And he also considers everything that distracts him from Christ as loss. So he tells the Philippians now, look, I want to know Jesus. And then these are the two ways that bring me closer to Christ. Verse 10, I grow in my understanding of the power of Jesus' resurrection, and I share in Jesus' sufferings. Sorry, if you thought today's sermon was on the Lord's Supper, it's a different type of communion. The sharing is sharing in the sufferings. It was Paul's desire for this communion with Christ, which it flowed out from his union with Christ. Now, if that's confusing, that terminology, hopefully we'll get some help from our Puritan friend, John Owen. 
hopefully he will clear it up for us. However, if you've ever read John Owen, he is not exactly clear, and it takes a great exegete to understand him, but I've shortened it and condensed it. Owen said, we should make the distinction between our union with Christ and our communion with Christ. For our union with Christ is something done for us and to us. Kelly Capick picks up on Owen's writing and says, our union is a unilateral action by God. Remember, this is our union. In which those who were dead are made alive, those who lived in darkness begin to see the light, and those enslaved to sin are set free to be loved and to love. Therefore, when one speaks of union, it must be clear that the human person is merely receptive, being the object of God's gracious action. But on the other hand, our communion with God is something that we are called to be active in. For communion with God consists in his communication of himself to us and our return to him, that which he requires and accepts. And that return to God is what flows from the union that we have in Christ. Why is that important? Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? Right? They, they, they teach you in preaching, you always want to tell them, so what? So what? Today's Sunday, tomorrow's Monday morning, so what? Why does that matter? We should care. Because our reluctancy to actively pursue communion with Jesus is one of the greatest contributors pertaining to why Christians struggle with joy and contentment in Jesus. Especially for us this morning who may find ourselves in a spiritual drought. You may be sitting here today completely parched, wondering where, where has the fire gone which was once kindled by the love of Christ? I'm certain it probably feels on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis. You're just surviving, not thriving. You're just hanging on to Christ only by the grace of God. Loved one, if you want to rekindle that fire, you must draw near to Jesus. Because a piece of coal will only heat up when it's near the fire. When removed, it quickly cools off. For the record, I should state the main points of this sermon are not the only spiritual acts that will renew our affections for Christ. They're just the ones we're looking at in this passage, which verse 12 tells us were written by a man, the Apostle Paul, who was completely sold out to the Lord. He was taken hold. Taken hold by Jesus. So, number one. Share in Christ's sufferings. Verse 10. We're going a little bit backwards here in the verse. My goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I think one of the most intriguing things which stood out from this text, from this verse, is that the Apostle Paul doesn't say, if you want a deeper love for Jesus or a sweeter communion with Jesus, it's going to come through a life that is trouble and worry-free. Rather, Paul says, in order to be closer to Christ, to know Christ deeper, we're going to have to share in his sufferings. It immediately makes us face the reality that, that finding joy in Christ and growing in our relationship with him is not going to last if our faith is determined upon just getting what we want. Paul says, I don't seek to get what I want. I seek to get the one I want, and the one I want is Christ. My joy comes from that. Yet many people are consumed with presenting a Jesus who can just make someone's life easier or accepting a Jesus who will, will fill our life with anything and everything we can possibly imagine. The Jesus presented in the Gospels, though, says, you must forsake everything you desire in order to be my disciple. And right here, Paul tells us, if you want a flourishing relationship with Christ, it requires sharing in his sufferings and being conformed to his death. To be fair, Jesus does make life easier. He makes suffering easier because we know that we can trust him. For goodness sake, I don't know how you wake up in the morning not believing that God is sovereign and in control of all things, especially not only with the condition of the world, but even the condition of our own hearts. To be honest, it's only Jesus who makes bearing with myself easier. It's in Jesus' suffering that we find the point of application. We have to ask ourselves, what type of suffering does Paul have in mind? That's a good question. I hope you're asking yourself that. Because are we just supposed to make choices in life? Is, is what Paul's saying is that when, when we have a decision, we're just supposed to make whatever choice is going to make us suffer more than the other choice. Well, plan A leads to more suffering, therefore, that's what I'm supposed to do. I would argue no. You can imagine a romantic dinner conversation tonight between a newlywed or newlyweds where the wife, you know, asks her husband, Why did you choose me, my love? And the husband responds with, Well, I had another girl that I really, really liked. But you were the one I knew was going to cause me the most suffering. Obviously, that would not happen. I, I hope that would not happen. It's, but I need to make that point that Paul isn't saying choose suffering in every decision that you make. He's saying if you want to know Christ, you have to walk as Christ, especially in regard to how Christ suffered. So let's, let's narrow it down. Let's narrow his suffering down because Jesus suffered many things. He was tempted. 
He went hungry. He got thirsty. He felt tired. He felt righteous indignation. But the culmination of his suffering took place on the cross where he died for our sin. Romans 6 helps us understand how we can share in Christ's death, in that suffering. Or as Paul says to the Philippians in verse 10, being conformed to his death. Romans 6 helps. The Apostle Paul says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? That's my own memorization. Should multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we certainly also will be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Paul says the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. Therefore, you die to sin for all time as well. It's the application, consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, in risk of making anyone feel like I'm specifically calling them out this morning, I'm not. But, but we need to address this. Because one of the primary contributors to spiritual drought is the fact that you're not counting yourself dead to sin. The reason you do not taste the sweetness of Christ is because you're consumed by delighting in the pleasures of your flesh. Loved one, we, you, cannot have joy in Christ and live in sin. They are not compatible Good reason to sing out of the Baptist hymnal. It's probably songs in other Baptist hymnals or other hymnals, but trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If you take anything away from this sermon, remember that. Because when we find ourselves far from delighting in Christ, we have to diagnose ourselves, diagnose our heart, and, 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 and answer honestly. Is my drought, is my lack of delight in Jesus 
because I'm delighting in sin, because I want to continue in this sin. Sin cannot separate us from our union with Christ, but it can still have a great effect on our delightment in him. As Paul reiterates in the previous passage, that's why I consider all things lost, because anything we're tempted to believe will satisfy our longings outside of Christ is only capable of placing us back under the bondage he died to set us free from. It leaves us wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. Paul says, wonder no more. The word of God says, wonder no more. You've already been united in Christ, therefore enjoy sweet communion with him. How? Be conformed to his death by considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Alive to God. That leads us to number two. Walk in the newness of life. Back to the beginning of verse 10. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. I remember when my best friend and I were talking about the freedom we have in Christ. And, and I had shared my testimony a, a million times with him. Especially being freed from addiction. And he told me, he said, you know, I used to believe. Once an addict, always an addict. He's like, until I met you. And the transformation that God did in your life just shattered that belief. He, he said, I can't even imagine you as a drug addict. I said, well, praise God. Because the people that knew me before Christ can't imagine me as a Christian. You see, because it was evident to the people who knew me before Christ that I was unable to escape my bondage. I've had many phone calls from old friends who ask the same, even family members who ask the same thing every time they call. They, they say, what happened to you? I give the same answer every time. Christ set me free. Not fun. The power of Christ's resurrection sets sinners free from sin. It sets them free from the slavery and tyranny. Now, that's not all he does. That's not all the power of the resurrection of Jesus does, but that's a pretty big one. Now, I mean, if, if, if you just look at the qualifications of, for, for those who should lead the churches at elders, biblically qualified, what are their qualifications? It's their character. Why? Because the main consideration for those who are spiritually mature are the ones who continually die to sin. That's the marker of maturity. One who dies to sin and lives to God. Now, the power of the resurrection is not just related to the forgiveness of sins, and it's, it's also the freedom from it. 
the freedom that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit who gives us new life and releases us from the chains of sin servitude. It's the only way the idolater can be set free, not just the drug addict, but any idolater. Through the power of Christ's resurrection, yes, the addict becomes free. The gambler becomes the giver. The prideful becomes the the humble and the learner. The arrogant becomes humble. The lazy becomes the worker. The liar becomes truth. The self-consumed mother becomes selfless. The dominant wife becomes submissive. The uninvolved dad becomes the loving father. The unattending husband becomes the man who lays down his life for his wife. The sinner becomes the righteous. If you want to know true freedom, you set your mind on the implications of Jesus' resurrection. Now, at the risk of being misunderstood, I want to clarify one thing. A person who is set free from the power of sin is not set free from the temptation. It, do, it, it doesn't, well, they could be set free from the temptation of that sin, but that doesn't mean that they're free from temptation, okay? You will most certainly share in those sufferings too. Christ went into the wilderness to suffer temptations, and he came out sinless. We have to walk as Christ. I don't want you to think that if you're, if you're struggling with the desire to sin or that, that temptation, it means something's wrong with you. There's not. In, in fact, the word of God says God allows us to be tempted. I'm backing that one up. Well, that's not the... Oops. Huh, I thought I backed that one up. Oh, I did. There we go. No, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If you have a Bible, turn there because I just told a lie can't back that up because I forgot to put that scripture passage up. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. What does that mean? He allows us to be tempted. He knows we're tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to sin and the temptation. And I want you to know, though, that there's, there's nothing maybe as precious as, as a Christian struggling with temptation to sin who goes before the Father and asks him for help. Now, because Through that suffering, as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. That I can back up. James 4, 7 through 8. Submit yourselves then to God. Obey God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Come near to God, and he will come near to you.
finally, number three, look ahead to what yet's to come. Verses 11 through 14. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it. Why? Because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Verse 14 is the fulfillment of verse 11, that somehow Paul may reach the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is not a reference to our new life in Christ, being brought to life by the Holy Spirit. That's not what this is a reference to. It's referring to the consummation of all things when Christ returns and we receive glorified bodies. It's the final link in the chain of salvation that we find in Romans 8. Starting in verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Right there in verse 20, what's God's will for your life? To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers and sisters. And then he says, here's our chain of salvation. And, then he, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Or will glorify. I guess it just sounded cooler to Paul to stay in the same tense. And that's application. Like Paul, we should remind ourselves and look forward to the resurrection of the dead when we will receive new and glorified bodies. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. With that said, I don't believe a glorified body is the ultimate reward in Paul's sight. Because in verses, or I'm sorry, in between verses 11 through 14, Paul tells them, I have not reached my goal, and his goal to begin with was to know Christ. He says, I have not yet taken hold of the one who has taken hold of me. And he says, but hey, I don't get caught up in my insufficiency to take hold of Christ. Instead, I look forward to what is ahead. What's ahead, Paul? The day when I see Jesus face to face. Surely a glorified body is the prize. It's going to be a prize for a lot of us. Some of us are ready for that body. But that's just simply what's required to dwell in the presence of our true reward. On that day, Paul's saying, I will have finally taken hold of him because on that day I will be made like him when I see him for who he truly is. You see, when a, per, when a person is taken hold of by Christ, like Paul was on the road to Damascus, 
their heart and their mind are completely captivated by Jesus. They don't want to move their gaze elsewhere. They know if they take their eyes off of Christ, they will see nothing that could ever compare to the surpassing value of Jesus. King David knew this as well. Love this verse. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, only this I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life in order to do what? To gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Have you ever been so captivated by something you could not take your eyes off of it? Something so beautiful, you, you were afraid to look elsewhere because it was just so compelling. Maybe the sight of a glorious mountain range has that effect. Maybe the ocean. Gorgeous sunset. A dark night that is lit up by an enormous full moon. Symphonies and, and books, which, which also possess an ability to draw us in and, and hold our attention, at least momentarily. The birth of a child or a, a, a spontaneous moment and where our hearts become overwhelmed by joy when, when we are gathered with those that we love and we look at them and we're just captivated by our love for them and their love for us. They're all good things to be captivated by. Yet Paul says, look, while all of these are good and pleasing, none of them compares to Christ. How do we get to that point? How do we, like Paul, become completely sold out to the Lord? It's, It's simple. Pursue communion with Christ and delight in your God. That's it. That's our purpose. That's why we were created. That's why we were redeemed, to glorify God and enjoy him. Has Christ taken hold of you yet? Does he have your heart? Does he have your mind? Does he have everything you are? If not, Stop setting your aim on things that distract you from Christ and put your gaze on him and him alone. Because if you're in a spiritual drought, it is not your inability to be perfect that keeps you from taking hold of Christ. Instead, it is our unwillingness to pursue him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, your spirit came at Pentecost, a promise given to glorify your son, Jesus Christ, in us. And God, we fight against that. We fight against distractions and temptations, Lord, things that would turn us away from Christ. God, I pray that through the word of God and the spirit of God, He would convince us that there's nothing greater, Lord. He would come and and, and stir our affections for Christ, Lord, so that we may truly know him and find our joy and contentment in him. And God, I pray for those who 
who may need the fire rekindled now. God, you are able to do that. Lord, would you call them to you? Would you call them to draw near? Convince them that you draw near to them. Conform them into the image of Jesus Christ, which provides joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.